You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined by Sean and a special guest named Ashton from Shelfside, which is an awesome YouTube channel that reviews board games. Welcome to the show, Ashton. Hey, hello, everyone. So Ashton, you run Shelfside with Daniel. And what's the relation there? Are you guys friends? Are you brothers? Are you cousins? What's the... Because you you, see, you have really good synergy. And I, I, I imagine your friendship probably extends for quite a long time. So maybe tell people about yourself, a bit about your background and and how the YouTube channel came about. Sure, sure. <laughs> it's really funny because on some earlier videos, we get comments like, oh, are you guys brothers? Ha ha ha. Are you related? <laughs> and... I, we do look a little similar. I mean, like our body structure is like the same. Basically, we're both tall and skinny guys, but uh, we're not related in any way. <laughs> we met in elementary school, like third grade. And he, we just started hanging out and he taught me like all these games like Yu-Gi-Oh! He taught me chess. We mm-hmm. played a lot of the games on the playground, like handball. And then we just hung out a lot, a lot. And it was that. And then middle school, we just continued to play a lot of games, mostly Yu-Gi-Oh! Mm-hmm. And then in high school, we kind of... uh we didn't spend as much time, yeah, together because he went to a different high school. But then late high school and then like college years, we started spending more time together and I got more into board games and I roped him in. And then at the end of college, I was like, hey, I really want to make a YouTube channel. It sounds like a nice career for me. And he was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it. So that's how Shelfside began. So that's really cool. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's more than just a channel. It's like a, a career move like that. That's yeah. what you want to do full time. And yeah, yeah. I know yeah, that you have a patron, a, a Patreon. Mm-hmm dive into that too i mean patreon is just a way for people who like our stuff to support us a little more and then they can watch additional content and then they have like heads up on updates on our channel like oh this is the review i'm working on now or maybe let's vote on the next review we should make i think that's pretty cool and so it's just another way to to help fuel that dream of running the channel full-time and so i'm curious about that you know and how you monetize the channel because part of part of we'll dive into the actual Mm -hmm. content because with an audience, you want to make sure that you make the content that they want to see so that they'll watch videos. And that's, I'm guessing, the primary motivator for, well, I guess the primary revenue generator. How do you monetize? Is it just Patreon and you, through YouTube? Or do you do other things? Do you sell uh, like swag, t-shirts and stuff like that too? Or mm-hmm. Yeah, we have some apparel, like some t-shirts, some tote bags. I'm looking to hoodies and more t-shirt designs. But it is mostly through everything video related right now so we have the we have the youtube revenue and then we have the patreon revenue we also have sponsor deals like people will put in ad segments in our videos i think mm-hmm. we had two videos in february and one and two in january where people reach out to us it's not even board game related per se they just say oh we want like a segment in our vi- in your video and i'll talk about it for like 30 45 seconds and work with them on a soft script and if it's like clothing i wear it in the video i'll show it off yeah that's awesome. Do people, are people able to kind of pay for that sort of sponsorship with a board game? Like for example, hmm. this game right here, Deliverance is one that I'm, I've designed and is coming to, it'll hit in like June. And if I came to you and said, hey, would you be willing to, to do this? Do you ever do promotional content like that? Or is it like a, maybe like more for like a board game company or a, f- a product that's upcoming that people should check out, but it's not what I'm reviewing right now kind of thing. Because I know it, it is kind of a controversial thing when, you know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with how, how it is where you're like, 
Um, do, you know, is it, are you able to pay for reviews? Is it really a review or are you, it does it naturally bias you if you're paying for content and that kind of thing. And really, I guess one of the reasons that I thought it was uh, so relevant is because I, number one, I'd love to have your thoughts on the uh, quote unquote review. Is it officially, uh, or is it able to be called a review? Um, and then number mm. two, if anybody cares, like if anybody actually like, you know, like backers on Kickstarter, do they actually really care or, uh, or not? Is it something that is overblown or, um, you know, how you feel about it, you know? Wow. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. This could be a whole podcast <laughs> in of itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have, uh, there's, yeah, there, there's two things, right? There's a preview and then a review. And I have like that really big distinction in my head when approaching these videos, because when we made our videos initially, we wanted to give it a, give everything a score. So, you know, one through 10. And then we also have a personal score of one through 10. So that is a way to kind of more objectively approach a game while also giving our personal taste on it. For example, Wingsman, we think is a fantastic game, but it just doesn't suit Daniel and I preferences. We rated a three out of 10 personally. Mm -hmm. uh, recommended score was a nine out of 10. Yeah. So uh, yeah, as we got into this industry, there are people reaching out to us for reviews. And of course, at the beginning, you're like, oh, this is so cool. I'll just do everything, right? This is like a free game. But at some point you're saying, wow, this is taking a long time to do. We probably need some, some compensation. And mm -hmm. then so uh, we talked to other people in the industry and they're, they're saying, oh yeah, these are like the rates we use and blah, blah, blah. So we kind of work our, work our way up and find out the right pricing on our end. But that is not our main video uh, output, I would say, because yes, it is not necessarily what people want to see per se. Like for a really mm -hmm. popular game like Kings of Ruin, Tain and Grail. Yeah, for sure. People yeah. want to see that. So we work with Awaken Realms and we get like a review out and it's kind of a review preview blend because it's not the full game. But since mm -hmm. it's two scenario campaign, it's two scenarios of the campaign and we played the previous Tain and Grail, we have enough information to say, oh, this is the tentative score we can confidently give. And, that, and, and that's so, what I really appreciate about your content is that you, mm -hmm. unlike most reviewers, you do have this objective score, which is your recommended score. Then you have your personal scores. And it's really great when watching your content because you're able to compare and contrast. You can tell the differences between you and Daniel and what your preferences are. And, and then also the recommended score and really compare those things and get a really balanced view, I think, of the, the qualities of the game. And then on mm -hmm. top of that, what makes your content so distinct from a lot of other reviewers is that you clearly put a lot of playthroughs into your reviews. It's very clear that you understand like the minute tactics and you've, which you, you could only really work out if you've played the game a lot of times, you know, sometimes I get the sense with reviewers, frankly, that it's kind of clear they've only played the game maybe twice. And then they like, here's my thoughts. And they go on to the next thing. And that it's they're like, dead inside. <laughs> that, that too um, but I, I really find with your content and i already noticed this with radlands i think radlands is a, is a great example where i think if you play sean it, hates this game i love it, but sean hates it. i think sean is zero out of ten <laughs> just salty it's because his wife keeps beating him <laughs> but i think that's a great example of a game where at, at first like yeah this is great but then as you play like well there's some i think there's some real fundamental problems with mm. the, the how the game's laid out and i think you you covered that very well in, in your review. So I think that's just an example of this idea of having this kind of overall view, but the objective review, and then your personal views, which I think is very helpful and very unique in terms of the content space. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of our card game experience has to help with that because Daniel and I played a lot of card games. Uh, Daniel was, I think, like top 100 in North America for Hearthstone at some point, like the first wow, one yeah. of the first years it came out. 
And I went to like Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments growing up. So yeah, we, we've been through all that stuff. So when we're playing a game, we would go like, oh, like, okay, something like doesn't quite feel right here. And then we play it again. And sometimes you have to play the game a lot to get to that point. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just play it two or three times and it's okay. So mm-hmm. yeah, it does depend on the type of game. In terms of like campaign games, we, we do get a little carried away in our enthusiasm because we're like, oh, you know, we're just going to play it three or four times. That's like the gist of the game. And then we're going in and we're like, wait, this is so cool. There's more around every corner. And we usually end up beating the game. So <laughs> that, that's, yeah. that's what happens and why we get so deep in campaigns. Like Daniel, he just beat Frosthaven. So that's an upcoming review. He beat Gloomhaven. He beat Jaws of the Lion. Oh, I, he beat Frosthaven? He played yeah. all. He played yeah. through a complete Frosthaven game. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Oh, he's hibernating now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, well, he'd be hibernating after the review. Saw that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it's kind of just like our own interest that just leads us to playing the games a lot. But also we just have a lot of friends. Um, we want to play with different friend groups and different friends have different ideas. So we kind of go off of their thoughts and use that to incorporate it in our review. And we just have a lot of, I'm just very fortunate to have a lot of smart friends who are into board games. So I, I ask them about their ideas and that helps make the review. That's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think that there's a, there's something to be said for your personal score as well as like a general score because using the dice tower as probably the most prominent example of early figures that actually became personalities in the board game space, Tom Vassals, Yi Garcia, Sam mm-hmm. Healy, you know, I, I kind of align myself with Sam and the games he likes or Tom and the games he likes. And it's like, if mm-hmm. Tom likes it, then I'll probably like it, even though Z just throws shade on something, um, you know, because it's, it's not his long. style. It's too long. Yeah, time. yeah, it's too long. <laughs> it had minis and, uh, and standees, terrible sin. Um, you know, that, that type of thing is just, I know that that's just his personality. And I know that, you know, it's not, you know, his, his favorite games are not mine. And I, I really think that that's cool. And I, I definitely, when I watch videos on your channel, I see a a distinct contrast between, um, the two of you and what you prefer. You know, I was looking like for myself, I designed deliverance and, you know, but we, the main thing that we do, we help others, you know, with their tabletop projects and, you know, just in general, video games, board games, and, and RPGs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we always teach them is that you should only be sending games to people to review or for previews if they like those kind of games. And one of the mistakes that I made with uh, with uh, Deliverance was saying, oh, this person, I, I think that they should review. They're a name that a lot of people know. And so just to have a, a name and their name recognition will help and it felt more like a rules explanation than an actual gameplay. Very low energy. And I just, you know, I, I learned that that person likes lightweight 20-minute mini Euro games that fit in your pocket. That's like their favorite. And Deliverance is this massive kind of, you know, Gloomhaven-esque, um, you know, campaign and skirmish. Like, it's more like Zombicide, really. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, it was just a, a mistake at the end of the day to give it to that person. But it's kind of tough to figure out what they like if um unless you watch a bunch of videos but with yours it's it seems like it's very very easy it's like i found a you know like zombicide it's like oh i rate that seven out of ten it's like okay maybe maybe they'll like this one maybe not and you know but i'm able to actually make that distinction because of your you know adding your personal opinion into it and do you do do you add your personal opinion into a quote-unquote preview yes that that's the plan to do because uh even if it's just a preview uh, the goal I wanted with our videos is for people to walk away with some type of way to measure how good it was in their brain. So 
if we do, we haven't done an official preview yet, but if I do do one in the future, it will be a tentative score and then still a personal score for me with the caveat of I've only played this one or two times and it's not as deep as it normally is. Yeah. Very cool. And so I'd love to just kind of dive a little bit more into the the, the number of times that you play that you play games and, and other things like that. Let's say if somebody were to take you up on a, you know, midweight Euro game, um, they want you to play and you accept them, maybe actually even just simply accepting them is something worth talking about. Like how does somebody get on your radar and how do you, how would somebody get on your channel? I'm curious about how often or how many times, do you guarantee a certain number of plays or, you know, before forming an opinion or sharing an opinion, anything like that? Yeah. Our absolute minimum is at least two plays. That's the bare minimum. And what ends up usually happening, if like, let's say like a Euro, right? You brought up, then I'll play it two times with other people and then I'll play it solo by myself. So that'd be mm -hmm. technically three plays. And you know, that's like pouring in six or seven hours into playing. And I mm -hmm. usually after that, I have a good idea of what the game is capable of, especially if it's similar to other systems I've played before. The one thing that we, we hope to cover is certain things people need before reaching out to you for yes. reviews or previews. Is there any like, pet peeves you have of like oh just send me this or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah if if someone's listening and like oh yeah i really want to get a review from shelf side what are the things that they need before they come to you <laughs> mm. okay yeah so the number one thing and this is still a problem with published games and games that are even popular is the rule book just a way to easily learn the game because you know as a board game reviewer of course, we've learned a lot of games so it's easier for us but we also have to learn games as a job and that can be little more rough so the rule book needs to be fleshed out like there shouldn't be typos in it you should give it to multiple people before sending it out and have a physical copy in the box because having to print out something as a reviewer is just more irritation onto the process and i have a black and white printer so it's worse for me yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah uh yeah so a lot of designers what will happen is that they'll say oh i've showed the game to a lot of people and they all found it really easy to learn and so I'm going to send it to you. It's easy to learn. Don't worry. And we get the game and it's like, oh, no, it's only easy to learn because you explain the game to the people, not because they read the rule book. Yeah. So, yeah, a really nice rule book with someone shown to someone that doesn't know anything about your game is probably the minimum. And of course, player aids, glossary, frequently asked questions, all that stuff should be in the rule book. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you guys yeah. do play tests as like a service, which I think yeah, would be yeah. very valuable knowing your background and your enthusiasm for games. Do you do rulebook reviews in that process? Oh, that's an interesting one. Yeah, I haven't thought of that. I actually have some friends that are joking around doing that as a service. But yeah, that, that is, um, I think the official term for that is like a, a copywriter or something or a, a rules. There are some type of job title. But yeah. Copy editor would look uh, at the spelling and, and, and syntax and things. But even in terms of clarity, you, um, I think your experience just of playing lots of games would be very valuable for, especially first time publishers, first time creators, just getting your experience. Like, yeah, this is like janky. You need to put this here mm. or this was really unclear. <clears throat> Having that fresh perspective from, mm. I suppose, hardcore gamers yeah. and the people who are passionate about this, who've, who played mm -hmm. in competitive tournaments and stuff, would be very, a very valuable service that I think you should certainly consider adding to your roster of yep. things you can do. That, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll yeah. have to write that down. Another big one is the, the time length because a lot, of, a lot of these designers, they'll say, oh, this game length is only like from 30 to one hour or whatever, right? Or like 45 minutes per player. But that's only once you're really comfortable with the game. 
So then we would get mm-hmm. the game and we're playing it yeah. and we're like, wait, this takes so long to play. What, what is going on? Yeah, of course, it only takes two hours if you played the game 20 times and designed it. So yeah. that's something to help. <laughs> yeah, Yo, that makes that's... sense. These are things I don't think people actually think about. They take for granted. So I think this is going to be a helpful list for people. Do you, do you ask for a media kit and, you know, some standard images that you want for the for the video later or anything like that? Those are useful, but not mandatory because what I end up doing is just taking pictures of stuff anyways throughout the game. Like if you mm-hmm. watch our videos, you'll see like a cutout of a card here or some type of like component close up because it's kind of hard to see just at a wide angle. But uh, yeah, we have a lot of a lot of publishers work with us on having media kits, drop boxes, and there'll be a bunch of title PNGs, um, maybe some more rule books. And those are useful, but unless you have a folder with every single card in the game, I don't find it a mandatory. It's, it's really a bonus. It, it, mm-hmm. Rule books more important. A good robot yep. is the most important thing. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's also one of the most annoying things. I, I know as you know, a designer myself, just to, to put together the rule book that I have, it took so much blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. And there are bodies buried in my backyard. <laughs> I can tell you about. But uh, no, I mean, it, it, thousands of plays to, to get it right. And just blind play testing is a really key term that you are the rule book. If you're the designer of your game, you are the walking rule book. And you need to not be in the room when people are learning it. And that's how you really play test your rule book, you know? And um, I think Tabletop Simulator actually, you know, with the whole COVID thing, everybody kind of, well, for me, really discovering Tabletop Simulator and playing digitally, that is a great opportunity to really test your rule book. Just give it to people on Tabletop Simulator and do not be the person to teach them. It's probably a great way to get legit feedback to see if it worked or not yeah that's actually another uh, little bonus thing i guess i'll skip ahead in my list here but uh, a nice bonus thing you can do as a publisher or designer with these uh board game reviewers is offer the chance to teach them a game on tts Mm -hmm. because sure while that will change their perception of the rule book a little bit it'll have a more a closer guarantee to them getting the rules right which is super important on a youtube video but also just make them, it'll let them make the review faster, which is always helpful, especially when deadlines are coming up, right? You want your video released on the same day as your game found or Kickstarter launch. Don't email us like two weeks before or one week before, because just, <laughs> there's just no way. <laughs> yeah, because the game will take like a week to come to us and they'll say, oh, can you can you get the game released by this day? Like, well, if I'm going to play it three times and then film it, that's already like half a week. So there's no way. So yeah, yeah. at least one or two months beforehand is really nice. But as also as a game publisher, it's good to be flexible on your deadlines and say, oh, we're shooting for end of March or end of April. And then as it comes up, say, oh, well, it's probably going to get delayed by a bit or hey, it's OK if you release the video a couple days after our campaign. No big, no big sweat. And that way the video could be better. Mm-hmm. I actually think one of the, the key problems we encounter when marketing board games for crowdfunding events is that. Oftentimes people, they get their reviews out too late. Often they save them for the actual Kickstarter or GameFound launch when really they need to have it out beforehand so that people Mm -hmm. who are entering their communities, who are joining their email lists, are able to see the game in action and and see the game played and and get a sort of a solid grasp of what it's about before going to Kickstarter, before going to GameFound. So I think that that's stellar advice of get your reviews your reviews done as early as possible and send them to your community, at least one 
good kind of playthrough yeah. or good review uh, to your community before you launch is key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. In terms of publication time, though, uh, we found the best date to be right when the game found campaign releases or Kickstarter releases. That mm-hmm. way, in the whole SEO mumbo jumbo, they're riding off of each other, right? So, for example, King's Ruin release, also shelf side King's Ruin review release. And then they're just piggybacking mm-hmm. off each other. And if you watch the video and you say, oh, I really like this game, then you can go buy it right away. Yeah, definitely. I think that the the most important thing for me that when people miss this, their community just isn't as on fire about their game when when they launch on launch day is the the gameplay. They, they, people that are in a community, you know, following a game, they need to know what it, how it plays. They need to actually see it somehow. And I find just even a simple you know, having your kid or, or significant other holding an iPhone recording you play a few turns makes such a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that if, you know, if you were going to get, let's say a shelf side review that is going to get 10,000 views or, mm-hmm. or, you know, let's just say I'm looking at, you know, some of your more recent videos, very recent videos, you've got some with like 45,000 views, 15,000 views for, for, you know, games that are known. And then, Small ones, you had three three point six k views for uh, for one that was uh, smaller, less less well known. That's still a lot of views, and I would absolutely, as a creator, would absolutely want that on launch day when the campaign really needs its biggest shot in the arm that it's going to get. So I I definitely agree with that. And then and then what you're saying, it sounds like on the opposite end of the coin, you publishing your review it's going to benefit you guys when the campaign launches, there's the the greatest amount of interest. And if somebody's watching another video on YouTube and then sees yours, they'll probably watch that one too and just yeah. carry on. Which is so the best kind of, kind of like, campaign. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. yeah knowing how that uh, the YouTube algorithm works and that it really values watch time, it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's key to get people on the platform looking at the videos as long as possible. And this is one thing I've really noticed. We can come back to your, to your list, but I think it's, it's good to sort of pause here and maybe emphasize this. One thing that I've noticed with your reviews and your videos is that you add a lot of like entertainment to them, <laughs> add a lot of gags and things, which is, I think it's really smart because I think the best marketing and the best advertisements are entertainment. You know, we all grew up watching Star Wars thinking these films are great. Those films are just massive ads. <laughs> so you can go buy Star Wars toys when you leave the cinema. And I think you guys do a great job of entertaining people whilst also teaching them how to play Another cool thing you do is you add like strategy tips. So like, so when people mm. play, it's like, oh, here, try the strategy. And I, I really appreciate appreciate that as well as a try hard when I play games. So. <laughs> yeah, it's also like, awesome. like knowing the strategy gives you a better idea of the depth of the game, like what you can do. But but the mm-hmm. whole the whole gags thing or I guess jokes or whatever, it makes it fun for us to make the videos, right? It, it would be yeah. more boring if I was just like, oh, this is the game or whatever. I just want to have more fun with it, right? It, it, it's fun to play a board game. And also when we're playing the game, just a lot of jokes will rise up as, as we're just doing the motions and playing the turns. So that usually make it to the review at some point. Like, uh, I think we did Dune Imperium review. And for some reason, it's like Jenna Bezret, right? Is like the right word. And I just I just switched it as like Bene Gesserit. I don't know what's the right one anymore. Bene Gesserit, Jenna Bezret. <laughs> it was a yeah. guy that made the video. <laughs> That's awesome. I like that. I think that that's fun. It just, it makes, it makes you just, you know, one of the, one of the tough things I find about being a YouTube personality in board games is that board games are not fun to watch unless you make them fun. 
It's like they're they're a very agnostic box uh, full of alleged fun. And yet, if you play with the wrong group of people, it can be the most torturous experience known to mankind, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And so I, I really appreciate how you guys make it entertaining. And I think that it is very reflective in the amount of views that you have. Um, people value that. Something like Gaia Project, some of these Euros, like, sure, the game looks pretty good and it's colorful, but most of the fun of the game is in your head. Like, there's not really a lot of stuff moving around. It's just like the mm. optimization, like how like the faction works. And if you just watch someone sit there and just kind of like mutter to themselves, not that fun <laughs> to watch, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like a like the tabletop show from Geek and Sundry with Will Wheaton a couple years back. Yes. It's yeah. Like, so I was yeah. thinking about. Yeah, there, there's that's... so many um, confessionals, right? A lot of editing. They don't even play with a lot of the right rules for some of the episodes. Yeah. But yeah. But people don't care because they're, they're having a good time and it's entertaining and you're getting a, a sense of what the game's about. So yeah, I think uh, I think that's a that's a great show as, an, as in terms of an example of using entertainment to to market and sell board games. Yeah. So I, I got into t uh, tabletop, the hobby officially through my high school history teacher and he showed me tabletop the show and i was watching oh, okay. like ryan higa and then uh freddie w play this game i was like wait this looks so fun i could do that too and so you look up the games and then you go down the rabbit hole <laughs> yeah this is not because like the game has a good mechanic or anything i'm just like oh it looks like they're having a fun time and it's like yeah. pretty fast to play with your friends has there ever been a game that you've just wanted to cover because you either own it and love it or because you saw you heard about it it's you know they've got a kickstarter that's coming up and you just contacted them and asked for a copy um or anything like that the main way games catch my eye on impulse and for me to buy and play is like if i'm at barnes and noble or a game store and i'm just walking around and i'll say oh that's undaunted normandy or that's soul forge fusion or bonanza i've heard good things about that and then i'll i'll buy it and then i'll see if it plays well if it plays well then i'll do a review if i'm motivated mm -hmm. so that that that's a good way uh other than that i guess a theme is a really big one nowadays for me mm -hmm. i used to be more about the mechanics and having a lot of complexity but now uh, having a really good universe a compelling universe is good like radlands right radlands has a very mm -hmm. compelling universe it's also easy to learn and not too long which is generally kind of the it gets me over the fence the shorter it is and the more accessible it is to learn that helps find a way to frame the game in a very exciting way and then just email people and see where it goes and to give the tts rule explanation a really good rule book player aids just all the stuff to really oil the gears to get the the reviewer yeah. excited and be able to play your game Got it. I like that. So what I heard was make the game as accessible as possible. Minim really, the, I guess the goal from mechanically, what I would try to do as a designer trying to um, win you guys over is to say, you know, give you guys the polished rule book, offer the opportunity for a tabletop simulator to teach mm -hmm. and uh, play through if you guys wanted so that you would have to spend as little hours as possible learning so that you could kind of really, I guess, compartmentalize and minimize the amount of hours you have to spend to make the content. That's definitely an attractive element. And then of course- Give them the plenty of time to cover the content. And, yes, and then the time. And that makes a lot of sense. And you know, honestly, I think when when I think about um, you know top tier channels, and I think you guys are 
are quickly growing into one of those top tier channels, you're not really going to stand a great chance if it's your first design and you are just, you know, even if it sounds fantastic, you probably need to really like release at retail or have a couple of designs under your belt um, in order to get on your personal radar. So is that, is that fair? Is that, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's already quite a bit. I think after that, it just goes down to refining the game and just saying, Oh, I'll delay another year or another two years. Cause if the game is really that good, then you can wait to release it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've heard it done for many games that were sent. They're saying, Oh, well, I had this game stewing for four years and then I just wanted to show it to a couple more conventions and see how they think. And I got more playtesting done. And that's free playtesting, right? You show it at a convention, yep. people will play the game with you and you say, oh, uh, one year down the line, you say, hey, reviewer, look, I've playtested this game at so many conventions and they all liked it. So you should check it out. So that's another way to get interest. So that's a good point. So to actually specify how many times it's being playtested would be advantageous when reaching out to a reviewer. Yeah, specificity is good because uh, if you say, oh, I've played it, I've play tested the game for five years, that's very vague to me. Whereas if you say, oh, I went mm -hmm. to PAX East and a ton of people liked it, that's a little more engaging. Hmm. That makes sense. So specific is terrific. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's, let's go into the outreach. And we've discussed this a couple of times on the podcast, but when somebody reaches out to you, um, using that kind of that whole specific is terrific adage, what do you want to hear from an email outreach? So, or uh, what? We'll put it this. Yeah. Actually, we can. Let's do the opposite end of the coin. What? I what do you? What drives you crazy? What drives you crazy? Uh, hard to read email. <laughs> a lot of links in your in your email are really good. So, for example, oh, I have a BGG page, or I have my website, or I have the rulebook. And if you can give me the complexity, player count, general hook of the game within the first two paragraphs, that's really good. So uh, I think a good format I've been seeing is, hey, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. And then I have this upcoming game called this, this, and it's this long and it's this theme and it's about this complexity. It takes, And then here are some more bullet points about the game. And then here's a rule book down below, or here's a BGG link, or here's our website. Mm -hmm. And then uh, here's some attached uh, pictures if you want to look at it. I think that's that's pretty good. Awesome. And then would they ask at the very end, is this something you would be interested in covering? And is that something that you would then respond and say, this looks interesting. What do you think about covering in this capacity, that capacity or the other? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. There'd be uh, a good question for a designer to ask or what type of services do you provide? What is your timeline availability? And uh, yeah, uh, this is my timeline. I want it released by June 1st or whatever. So sometimes we would get we get games that are half complete sent to us and they'll say, oh, we'll unveil this stuff during the Kickstarter campaign. And sometimes that's okay, but you want to avoid that as much as possible because if we're sent components, we want to talk about them. So it, this is kind of like a personal thing. I don't want to get sent a game and say, oh, this is stuff I'm not allowed to talk about because it hasn't been released yet. Another one is when you're approaching a reviewer and maybe this is later down the email chain, is to say what part of the game you specifically want reviewed. So if you have a 1v1 game, and obviously you want that to be the focus, but does it have an alternate campaign mode? Does it have a 2v2 mode? Does it have a variant? And if you put a lot of effort into creating these things, you might want to say, oh, I want those also reviewed. And if that costs mm. more money, what would the price be? 
Otherwise, you send the game to a reviewer and they're probably just going to play the main mode because that's what the game is known for. Yeah. That's a great point, actually. A really great point. In fact, I feel like I'm listening to this podcast live and it definitely gives me some um, some more things to think about for for deliverance. One of the things that I just did uh, right, like right before our podcast is I recorded a, a game play of deliverance on a higher difficulty level. Mm. And I think that uh, whenever you, you know, whenever I would normally give a copy of deliverance to, to somebody and they would review, they would review at like the lowest difficulty, which is the simplest way to play. Mm-hmm. But then you have, um, you know, these what are called talents that just kind of customize enemy behaviors, make the game harder. And there are like five levels of difficulty that you can increase in, in a similar manner to like Gloomhaven or Frosthaven. Mm-hmm. But usually you don't see Gloomhaven or Frosthaven covered on like high difficulties. So is it fair to ask like, hey, I'd like you guys to play through one of the hardest difficulties and and review based on that it requires more time and effort and energy or, mm-hmm. or i guess should uh designers ask that of reviewers in general if they wanted a good review hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's a common request but it's a very smart request to have and what you can do is you can say oh well obviously play the intro difficulty or beginner difficulty and then you kind of suss out this reviewers their preferences and then you say oh can you also try this difficulty and just jump to that difficulty if if applicable and then just play yeah. that and see what you think uh, it's interesting because your your channel it it's reaching an interesting positioning in my mind as a, you know for placement because you and daniel you know were competitive uh i'm, I'm actually also a former professional hearthstone player oh, nice. myself and i played a bunch of Yu-Gi-Oh and magic and pokemon and you name all the other dead card games that i have like a warlord tcg card right over here just sitting next to me. You guys seem like you enjoy that challenge. You enjoy extremely hard game. I mean, Frosthaven is a great example. Gloomhaven, Frosthaven, if you guys are playing on high difficulty. Do you, are you gluttons for punishment? Do you like difficult games? <laughs> uh, one of my friends and I, we always joke that we're masochists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're, like we're learning a super hard game and we're like, oh, you know, let's just play it one more time because uh, we just like to, we just like to suffer through the, the, the rules yeah. there. <laughs> so you probably love games like Nemesis and and where you just it's it's difficult. I mean, it's it feels like you're playing Dark Souls, um, mm. you know. But uh, that, yeah. that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, for a lot of co-op games, unless the game is extremely theme heavy, like Mansions of Madness or Eldritch Horror, there is an element of it's not interesting enough unless you play on hard difficulty, because obviously when you create the game, you make it for everyone to enjoy, and if you know, you got to make it for the person that's new to board games or doesn't have a tournament background. So I understand the difficulty level. So we usually have to crank it up a little bit. Okay, yeah, I have one more thing. And this is more of a thing about the game itself is you want to ask, does the game have good replayability? And if it doesn't, then is there just a little tweak I can do to just give it a lot more replayability? Because replayability is like catnip on a kickstarter page yeah. aside from minis and minis and a lot of components because we got sent a game before and we were like wow this game is actually pretty good but you know if they made this little tweak to how the objectives were measured or how they were pursued then the game would be two or three times more marketable so that's something to consider mm. and maybe it's okay it doesn't have good replayability like uh, if you're a campaign game then maybe it doesn't matter but that's something for the designer to figure out before they even send it out. That's a really good point. And actually something that kind of grinds my gears when I 
uh, when I'm reviewing a Kickstarter page, we do a lot of Kickstarter page reviews just to make sure that, you know, all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, you know? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time they'll say something like infinite replayability. <laughs> like I am not going to replay this infinite, an infinite number of times, but what, <laughs> like I might play this a dozen times, let's say, but is it going to feel like a different experience each time? Or am I just placing the map tiles in a different pattern in like in an infinitely different pattern, mm -hmm. but it still feels the same. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, one of my, the, the games that I really, really loved was uh, Sanctum, uh, kind of like Diablo, whatever it's Diablo two, you know, that you're playing through and the, you're basically fighting Diablo with two extra horns at the end. So they don't get sued, I guess, but they, uh, the game feels really, really fun. It feels just like Diablo. You slay demons, you get loot and equip your character and you kind of gain, um, I don't know, like talents and you play different classes and it feels really good. But then at the end of the game, you, you know, you win or you lose. And then if you want to play again and you play that same class, you have the exact same experience. And so really the, the only true replayability, despite the, you know, even though you choose ability A or B, is playing with a different character. And so to me, there are about five games in a Sanctum box because there are five characters to play. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of oversimplifying it. I think Sanctum is one of those games that I would love to have on my shelf because I just get that, you know, I want to play a Diablo game right now. And, um, you know, bust that one out like once a year or something. But it just feels like, you know, the infinite replayability or like high levels of replayability. What makes a game replayable to you? Hmm. Well, I was about to say a good counter, like a uh, contrast to Sanctum that you mentioned is Twilight Inscription, which is like really relevant mm -hmm. on my mind right now because I'm making the review. So that is a game yeah. that has 24 factions to play. So when you're opening the box, it's like, wow, this is like mind blowing, right? So many factions. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that the objectives are so similar that you really need the factions to give you replayability. So that's like where they went too hard on giving you a lot of factions. So it's like you're almost forced to jump factions to get replayability. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like the game still has good replayability because it has such quantity of factions. But if they just took maybe half the factions out and added more objectives, that'd probably be more mm -hmm. enjoyable overall because you could master a faction play different objectives instead of seeing the same objectives over and over again yeah for, for replayability in general uh yeah having the game feel different from the get-go is nice so you don't want to like put face down cards and say oh mid-game it's going to be different because of this card flip it's good to have a starting board that actually matters civilization 2010s and myers is a good example the the board being different every game really does matter because there's waters there's relics there's different ways to build your cities. Maybe something like Star Wars Rebellions, really good option. There's no variable map, but the way you hide your rebel base is really gripping and creates different stories every time. And something that maybe doesn't have as much replayability is for the ring, right? The counterpart to the counterpart, the, the kind of example compared to Rebellion a lot, where that game always has the same setup. So after my fifth playthrough, I'm like, I've, I've seen this before. Like, yeah, I know the game's gonna be different down the line, but when you make those opening moves, it's like, uh, the cards are different, but I'm moving the troops in kind of the same way. So that's been a bit of a barrier for me there. That's awesome. Cool. Now, I know one thing when you guys do reviews, you don't just do video reviews. You also accompany those video reviews with a board game geek post and a blog post on your website. And I think that's a, it's a real neat package that you kind of all tie, tie in together. It really helps, to be honest, with SEO because you have Google, which is the second biggest search engine in the world. And then you're creating content that's sort of optimized for 
uh, Google, right? Google search with a blog post and a board game geek post. So it's a lot more work when you do that. Cause I imagine if you've kind of scripted a video and you've, you shot it, is it easier then to just compile that into a, a blog post? Yeah. So it's definitely easier for me uh, versus Daniel. Cause he's a little more perfectionist when it comes to the text reviews. But uh, okay. at some point we, we figured out that, well, we have so much like text. We have so much just sitting there on Google doc. I think we maxed out the capacity for Google Doc and we had to make like a new one at some point. <laughs> so we're like, you know, we want to share this with people, but we're not sure how. Maybe we'll have it be a Patreon exclusive, but it's kind of janky. And then um, I want to merch at one, at one point and I'm like, well, we have the website, then why don't we just have written reviews? And if we have the written reviews, then we just have pictures and we take that from the video. It's like we already shot the pictures, genius. And then we can take those and put on VGG2. So yeah, it does take a little more work, but uh, it's kind of riding off of the hard work we already did, making a video review. Mm -hmm. What if you want a cheaper way to showcase your game, then maybe not a video review, but maybe a written review from a source that, that could work. I think that's an excellent point. The, the reach of YouTube is still kind of astounding to me. It's, it's just like, I mean, when I started my YouTube channel, I was getting four views a video, right? And I got my first hundred view video. I was like, yes, so good. And then hundred subscribers. Yes, it's so good. And then like, it just, the, the reach of YouTube is just simply ridiculous. Like we have videos that are up and they just keep getting promoted, like a Catan video, mm -hmm. right? Like they just yep. keep getting promoted. And so that, that's kind of like the X factor with YouTube, whereas there's a little more of a toss up on performance compared to BGG review. So ideally, I think you'd want both as a uh, board game creator designer because you have the video, if people on the video, and then you have a, uh, the written review, people can just see at a glance and it has like a score or whatever. I'm in a hundred percent agreement with that. I think that uh, the way that I look at it for strategy, it's really important to have how to play videos and mm -hmm. reviews that people can look at. But I think that the variety of content is, you know, it, it kind of opens my mind a little bit thinking that, you know, my board game geek page is probably um, a little bit too bare. You know, and we're actually going to be interviewing um, uh, Chad, the the guy behind all board game geek ads and mm. whatnot, and doing a, a special on that episode. But I feel like, you know, it's a really underrated place to to just fill out, make sure there's content there. Um, so yeah. designer cool. diaries are good. Lots of photos. Mm -hmm. Yes. To wrap up, um, Ashton, I like saying your name because I I put. Uh, about a thousand days played into a character that was a gnome rogue named Ashton. Oh man. Um, I was <laughs> okay. like, I made you world famous um, back in the day. Yes. You hit gladiator. I don't know if you know that, but um, so, and, and you're a gnome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You look like my grandpa. Uh, mm. You used to, I think. Where can people find you guys? Um, if they want to follow along, if they want to check out your YouTube channel or your other content, where can they find you? Yeah, so YouTube channel is the best. Just type in shelf side, one word. Just, we have a bunch of content. We have reviews, we have skits, and we have just other just long form funny content. And then we also have our website, shelfside.co. So that's basically everything all in one website. So that's our podcast. We have merch and then all our written reviews. Fantastic. And then you also have your services there where people can see oh, yeah. what you offer and then yeah. contact you. Yeah, that's true. So you can use that to put a submission if you want your game reviewed, or you can just email us directly. Our email should be on the website and also our YouTube channel. And then also on our website, it has a list of like, oh, what you can expect when you go through us for, 
go to us for a review. Awesome. Well, um, Ashton, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I hope you generate a ton of business from this podcast. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> can you brag about us? Later? Yeah, no, this is, this is cool. I was really, uh, I was really uh, thinking like all these, all these strategies on how to get in the mindset of a designer, like the other side of the table. It's fun. Yeah. All right. Well, well then, um, I guess Robot Richard sent us on out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.